you know, I really think of this film as a rise and fall story. We follow him as he makes his first million and his second million and his third million. Along the way, you know, this community starts to also believe in Dogecoin, rallying around him and everyone's sort of trying to make money together. He didn't sell because he felt like he was beholden to this community. So he never sold his Dogecoin at 3 million. But it's really dangerous to tie your identity to one financial thing because then it makes it really difficult to sell it. Hi everyone, I'm Laura Clinton and welcome to KindredCast, where we shine a light on the people and ideas shaping our future. KindredCast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree. Today we're here with Chris Temple to talk a little bit about his new film, This Is Not Financial Advice, fresh off its premiere at Tribeca Film Festival. This Is Not Financial Advice follows the stories of social media finance creators in the midst of all the crypto craziness in 2021 and beyond. We're excited to talk to Chris today in a very apt conversation for the Lion Tree community, touching at the intersection of capital, creativity, and community. Luckily, this is something that Chris knows a little bit about being a social impact documentary filmmaker. He's directed a slew of feature documentaries that have been released across HBO, Netflix, and PBS. Oh, and he was also one of HBO's 40 Under 40 filmmakers to watch. Today, we're happy to get him out in front of the camera to talk a little bit about his new film, This Is Not Financial Advice, and talk a little bit about social impact filmmaking, working with finance creators, and of course, Dogecoin. So first, let's just ask you, how was it debuting the film? What's the response been like so far? Yes, we've had three sold out premieres at Tribeca Film Festival in the you know heart of financial capital of the world. Perfect place to take a film called This Is Not Financial Advice. Uh, the reviews have been awesome, um, have started coming in. Uh, I think one person described it today and said they were screaming at their TV the whole time. Um, someone called it a financial horror film. Um, so, you know, some good, uh, good reviews of just uh, highly entertaining things that uh, we're getting at this intersection of, you know, entertainment, emotion and education. And I think that's what a good film can do. So, Absolutely. It is, we we're just saying, a very tough thing to watch. It's really hard to watch these people who have invested so much money and so much time into building these brands on things that are not quite as structured as traditional financial structures. So I guess leading into that, tell us a little bit about what the film is about and why it's so hard to watch for people like me. <laughs> Yeah, so the the film is called This Is Not Financial Advice, and it follows the last couple of years of a few individuals and their relationships to money. So two in, of the individuals have really high risk tolerances and are willing to take massive financial risk. And then two are sort of the foil characters who are helping to uh, give, I think, what would be more considered as traditional financial advice. And then, you know, what, what's interesting about money is we all have our own personal relationships to money. And, and so we had four different individuals from different walks of life and different circumstances circumstances that they're dealing with to give you, you know, give all viewers anywhere someone to relate to and like a, an ability to sort of see the different ways we interact with our money. I could cash out right now and just, you know, go about my life, but I would feel like I'm letting everybody down. Are these people that you found yourself through searching for your own financial advice online or are they just people that you happened upon in like the crazy world of social media? 
So this film began in early 2021. So like, remember what that period of time was like? It was, you know, Shorting everything. GameStop in, and exactly. Wall Street bets. Crypto, everything felt everything. like it was like going up. Everyone's talking about how easy it is to make money. Every group thread or social media post is like, I became a millionaire doing this. And, um, and so. I think the film really started to me with the idea of FOMO. It was like, I just felt FOMO watching other people on the internet making a lot of money by not seemingly doing very much. And so I was, I kind of got sucked into it myself and I invested in GameStop and I bought Dogecoin and I was in Wall Street Bets and I was following all this stuff kind of end of 2020 and into the start of 2021. And I was in these communities. And so I put out a, a tweet and just be like, Hey, would anybody be interested in creating a film sort of following this energy and this new wave of investors in this space? And the response was really resounding. A bunch of people kind of jumped on board and were really interested in doing this. And so then I started casting kind of within the community and I found three of the main characters on Twitter and one, um, one in a local newspaper article. And wow. so, uh, we just reached out, started having a conversation with Pro, the main character who calls himself the Dogecoin millionaire. Um, mm -hmm. I shot him a note on Twitter. We jumped on Zoom that afternoon. Uh, and the following morning, we started filming. Did you have any interest in the financial industry before all of that craziness in 2021? Or was it truly just you had this FOMO, you wanted to get into the game, and this was how you saw yourself entering that space? I had no interest in it. I mean, yeah. I... I'm a filmmaker. I, I didn't even realize until I started making this film that my Roth IRA wasn't invested. I just thought I had to like put oh, it in, no. <laughs> put it on Vanguard and then like it does its thing, but I didn't realize I have to like put it into. I'm something. not a financial advisor, but some financial advice, please invest your Roth IRA. You have to do that. You it's, have to do that. They don't tell you that. Where do they teach that? They don't that? tell you that. So they tell you that kindred media. <laughs> a lot of really frustrating things that were happening like that. So no, I did not know much about this space. I'd never bought individual stocks before. Neither of my co-directors, Zach and Grassi. And I think, you know, the process of making the film over the last two and a half years and getting to follow these main characters, but also speak to all these incredible experts who are in the film and Morgan Housel, who wrote the book, The Psychology of Money, Josh Brown at CNBC, um, Chris Camillo runs a YouTube channel, Dumb Money, all of these people, John Viev, Rock Dector, they all give great financial advice. And, uh, and I learning from them and doing these interviews allowed me to have a much better understanding of what I really should do mm -hmm. with my money and to tone down some of my risk taking, to think longer term about money. Um, and I think at the end of the day, like I think about it as boring is better. And that's not always the lesson that social media wants to teach you. Absolutely. And so what was it like working with this sort of breadth of different creators, seeing their process around investing and creating? What did you learn from that? And what are you hoping people will take away from it after they see the film? We ended up calling the film This Is Not Financial Advice because it had this intersection of creators and and money coming together. And, and how do you navigate this new world of there are thousands of new financial YouTubers, there's thousands of TikTokers. There was a stat that came out recently that 79% of young people get their financial information from TikTok and YouTube. Like This is where people are going. And then not all of that content's created equal, right? So- mm -hmm. Some of it is great financial advice. Some of it can be sponsored content. And we need to be aware of when it's sponsored or it's not. If someone's telling you to buy a crypto coin, but it's a sponsored crypto coin, 
you should know that, right? And then third, and then there's also just a lot of scams out there still. Like, I mean, people mm-hmm. are always going to take advantage of these money grab opportunities to try to trick you into Venmoing the money or buying into some pump and dump scheme. And so the more that young people can kind of be aware of some of those things, I think that'll help them be better investors. In working with these creators, how did that impact your own level of discernment around these financial creators? Are you able now when you scroll through on Twitter or TikTok or whatever, see someone promoting a coin and can you tell instantly if that's a sponsored post or not now? No. And I think that's one of the challenges is really difficult to tell yeah. what sponsor, what isn't, what's the incentives of each of these people putting out content. But now I'm at least aware of it. And I hope that viewers mm-hmm. after this film will be like thinking about, oh, is that sponsored? Who is behind this? Do I trust this person? And just take a beat with some of this stuff where it is very easy just to you know, see a post about something and you immediately buy it, whether it's a bracelet or a handbag or some new crypto coin, right? And people mm-hmm. are always telling us to, they're marketing at us constantly on social media. And so um, I, for me personally, I'm still very excited about the democratization of information. You know, it used to be that you had to go to business school or you had to, um, really grow up in a wealthy family to get any access to financial education or information. No one's being taught it in schools. And so now you do have the ability for any of us to open our phones and learn stuff, learn about compound interest, learn about investing your Roth IRA. Um, but it is just a double-edged sword. And I want people to be able to think about and be aware of, you know, the, the risks and things that can happen at the same time. But in the creators that you were working with on this film, were they more interested in the educational aspect of it or were they maybe experiencing a little bit of FOMO, just trying to get in on the space while it's still hot? Yeah. So one of the main characters of the film is this, uh, is this amazing girl, Kayla Kilbride. And she, she runs a, a TikTok and YouTube channel just called Girls Talk Stocks. And her whole point is to try to just bring in, especially young women into a market that has often excluded them, whether it's through different terminology that they use or just the cult- bro-y culture of investing mm-hmm. in crypto that often comes across. And so Kayla's whole hope has been to just try to help break down some of these terms, help people understand it, and maybe start to take some control of their money. And I think she does a really good job. And and I love a lot of the content that she puts out. And there's a lot of people just like her who are helping people you know, helping people learn in a new way. And and I think people like her are extremely helpful because if all of the financial creators look the exact same and talk the exact same, we're not always going to bring new people into the market. You know, you just, again, start with some of the basics. Like she does so many videos about just what is compound interest and compound interest is so vitally important for any form of investing because the key to it is time, right? It's like mm-hmm. slowing down, making money over time that in 35 years, compound interest can make you a ton of money by the time you're at retirement. But yeah. um, I think for many of us, when we're looking at our lives right now, we're like, well, I want money tomorrow. It's easy to say, I'm so happy that I can get this information when I'm 25 years old scrolling on TikTok. Yeah. And it's not something that you have to necessarily give up any part of your normal routine to go learn about. You can just do it. If part of if checking your TikTok is part of your normal routine, yeah. you can make learning about investing part of your normal routine as well. It sort of forces your hand a little bit. You're like, okay, you know, you're out. The algorithm starts to show you more and more financial content, and you're like, Absolutely. oh yeah, I never thought about that. So I like, yeah. You know. And especially in the case of someone like Kayla, who is building really a community, a community of young women who are very similar to herself. Girls talk stocks. They're they have similar interests. She can make these analogies that speak to that community. Yeah. How did this? How did create this film change your view of these communities and how did you feel these different creators were attracting different types of people did you notice a sort of similarity between 
their audiences at all? Or was it all different types of people completely? You know, I think one lesson that, you know, Pro's story really taught me, and he he calls himself the Dogecoin millionaire. This is a little bit of background. He he maxed out his credit cards, took out cash advances, took all his life savings, and threw it all into Dogecoin. And right? no spoilers, but the course of this film is slowly watching <laughs> cryptocurrency crash while he is so die hard on this belief that this is the future of money. You know, I really think of this film as a rise and fall story, and at least in the couple years that we've filmed with it, right, of you, we follow him as he makes his first million and his second million and his third million. And along the way, you know, this community starts to, you know, who also believe in Dogecoin are really validating his decisions or encouraging him or rallying around him and everyone's sort of trying to make money together, right? And I think one of the challenges that I think happened for Pro there is he didn't sell because he felt like he was beholden to this community of people that were all together. So he never sold his Dogecoin at 3 million. And he loved, I think the attention was really nice. The community was really nice. And he was so emotionally invested in one asset. And I think, you know, a few of our experts talk about this, but it's really dangerous to tie your identity to one financial thing because then it makes it really difficult to sell it, right? Mm -hmm. If you're emotionally attached to, you know, Peloton, if you invest in Peloton, it's going to make it harder for you to sell Peloton when it's maybe no longer a good stock to hold on to or whatever it may be. So I think a lesson that he really learned is, you know, the more you emotionally tie yourself to money, it can be really, really dangerous. And, and, uh, so for him, you know, and many people who held Dogecoin, they loved this community. They felt so emotionally tied to Dogecoin and this meme of a Shiba Inu and the whole mm -hmm. energy of what it stood for. And they didn't sell. And then Pro lost his whole $3 million that he could have made off of this, um, through the process. And it's so interesting to watch him reckon with the realities of he's in credit card debt. He has bills to pay these very immediate needs for liquidity yeah. and he cannot bring himself to sell. Yeah. It's this really interesting tension between the community and the capital. Yeah. And I guess I'm just curious your sort of take on what that means to be a creator in this space. What responsibility do they have to themselves and to their community? Because in some way you could definitely make the argument that had he sold when it was at 3 million, why would he even have his following? I don't know. If, I don't think he would have. You know, I don't think he would have built yeah. the following he has. And I mean, two things on that. I mean, another thing I think for pro and why he didn't sell. I mean, he again, he's he grew up really poor immigrant from Brazil. His mom works as a house cleaner. Um, and often we see, you know, stats show this over and over again, that those who have the least are willing to take the biggest financial risks. Right. Because mm -hmm. it feels like, well, if I can't make it any other way in the middle class, how do I try to leap for, how do I just take some chance to, to move this forward? And it's why in America, most of the people who are buying lottery tickets are those who are low income. And it's sort of a tax on the poor, this lottery, lottery ticket system that we mm -hmm. have. Um, so I think for him, he was making this decision too, because it was his chance to sort of get out. And I think a lot of the community around him too had that similar energy of like, we've been excluded and we haven't had the chance to make money. And I'm seeing all this inequality in the world, in this country, you know, 10% of, pe of uh, people hold almost 90% of stocks in the stock market. Like that's inequality. That's a problem. And so I understand where all of this frustration is coming from of why someone like pro or this community is feeling that way. So, um, yeah, long and short, I mean, I think you're seeing these communities rise up around, um, around much more philosophical 
frustrations and belief mm-hmm. systems um, that they want to upend some of the systems that haven't been working for them. And I can really understand that. So to me, I hope the film comes across as not judgmental of any of the decisions that people in the film are making, but really just trying to help a viewer understand and empathize with why we're in the situations we are of people taking these huge risks and and doing what they are and creating this content online. Absolutely. And shifting to the positives for a moment, because it's like you said, it's not everybody that gets into this space and has such a high risk tolerance. What are, I guess, some of the success stories that you've seen of people who have gotten involved in these online communities and learned a lot and actually maybe made some money for themselves through this community? You know, one of the main characters of the film is called, his name is Sinai and he runs, uh, he runs a local stock club in his community. It's a, it's an immigrant community down in Long Beach. And his whole goal is again to try to, lift up his community through financial education. And he runs this monthly club where anyone in the community can come together and just ask questions. They can have conversations about money, about investing. And those conversations, again, aren't happening in many of the marginalized communities. They're only happening at the dinner tables of rich families whose dad is uh, works at a hedge fund. That's sort of gatekeepers around that information. So I think, you know, both Kayla and Sanai are absolutely empowering their community through just simple access to information. Um, and it's part of why around the film, what we're doing is we've, we've partnered with a couple different nonprofits, next gen personal finance, uh, financial beginnings, and also Investopedia just launched a whole program around financial education. So how do we help you know, just by disseminating information online, whether it's on social media or through teacher trainings and into schools, just help people actually learn about some of these financial concepts and then lift up their lives. I mean, if you start a Roth IRA as a kid, or even right now, not as a kid, just today is the best day to start saving and putting it in the market. Reminds me of there's this great quote. I think it's a Chinese proverb. So uh-huh. the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. Is now. And, and it's the same thing with money. Again, getting back just the basics of that compound. And, and again, this is not financial advice, but beginning this process, you know, as soon as you can. And, uh, I think for many people, they just avoid thinking about mm-hmm. or talking about money because it's scary, because it's overwhelming, because they don't have access to the right information. There's so much shame tied up in it too. It gets turned into a conversation about personal responsibility when yep. so much of the time, these are these wider systemic issues that are holding people back and not giving them the ability to learn how they should be managing their money and do a little bit more with it to help themselves and their community. And I hope the film showed some more of those systemic elements rather than just, you know, again, the everybody has their own reasons for why they make their own personal financial decisions. And, and it's usually from the systemic level. So mm-hmm. there's also, yeah. I think, a really interesting paradox in the financial influencer world specifically, because most financial advisors due to FINRA are not able to post on social media and provide financial advice. So the title of the film, it's a fact. It's not financial advice. All of these videos are for entertainment purposes. How can users really vet their information? Anyone who's able to give you financial advice online cannot give you financial advice online. This is a huge, huge problem, I think. And and, and no one knows that, that anybody who is giving financial advice online is not registered to be able to give you financial (laughs) advice. Um, And that's, yeah, that's a fascinating element that I didn't even know until I started this process, right? Mm -hmm. I assumed if someone was teaching me online that if they're a wealth manager who has all the training and knows all the things, but that's not always the... There there are literally no practicing wealth managers making these videos. They are not allowed to do it. Yeah. Which is just so fascinating because people build their entire brands around it. 
I know. And I guess, how do we, you know, is that something that should change? Should we have more flexibility there to within FINRA to help, you know, those who really do know what they're talking about, disseminate more information through socials and as creators, because if they are running their own fund and they have an alternative source of income rather than just sponsorships, I think that can end up leading to better content too. I think sometimes these financial influencers understandably are forced just to sort of piece together sponsorship dollars from whoever they can to keep themselves going and um, versus being able to kind of underwrite their, their money through through a, a better business. Yeah. And how do you view, I guess, the integrity aspect of being a financial content influencer that decides to take a sponsorship deal? How can they do that in a way that is responsible? Is there a way to do it responsibly? Everybody is finding that balance between wanting to get out good financial information, but also make a living themselves. And it's a lot of work. Yeah. I, at least something I saw over the last few years of filming with all the different YouTubers, you know, people like, you know, me, Kevin and Graham Stefan, Andre Zik, and then they're working around the clock trying to create mm -hmm. content and put out really entertaining and educational content. And, it, and it's that balance, right? It's, if you make just a purely educational video, but no one sees it, did you make an impact? on the world? I don't know. But if you make, you start to blend that a little bit more and you made a slightly entertaining video that also taught them a lesson and you were able to reach a million people. Um, I think that made more of an impact than something that no one ever saw. And we run into this as filmmakers, right? I mean, there's an element of this film that I hope it's, and it's, I hope it's really educational for people. It helps them think about their money and this, the behavioral finance and they learn some good lessons. But I also hope that they laugh and they want to share it and they enjoy it and it's a roller coaster ride. So it's always finding that blend between entertainment and education if you mm -hmm. really want to reach a big audience in today's day and age of the competitive attention economy. Like these YouTubers are fighting for eyeballs when, what is it, like a billion hours of content is uploaded to YouTube every day. Like, I mean, how else are you going to cut through the noise? Yeah, I think one of the scenes in the film that really stood out to me is Kayla in her bedroom, just getting so many different shots of this one TikTok sound. And she's trying on costumes and yeah. she's like doing these movements. And it's so much is focused on the entertainment aspect yeah. of what she's providing. How did you view the time split for these creators in creating content that was really informational and had a lot of substance? And then how much were they also really just focused on bringing their personality into it and having fun and being entertaining? You know, I think it, it think it just depends on a creator by creator basis. And I think, you know, there, again, there are so many good people out there who are creating good content. And, you know, I think part of the game is figuring out how to understand the algorithms and running it as a business and, and doing that sort of work. And I think if you have a good thumbnail, your video is going to get seen by more people. And, and so it takes a moment to, you know, get the right light, to get the thing, to get your mm -hmm. picture. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I think the, the folks that I think are doing some of the best work have been doing it for a long time and they're building off of their financial knowledge, you know, video by video by video. Um, and it can be harder to sort of be starting cold as a, you know, a new person coming in as a financial influencer. If you maybe don't have the same breadth of knowledge and information going into it already. Someone else described the movie as a living case study in how investing, gambling, technology, and social media intersect. So what was, what was it like seeing that intersection in action? Yeah. I mean, I think, to me, this is, 
yes, it is a period piece about this, this crazy moment in time from 2021 to 2023 of this rise and fall mania in the markets. I don't think the factors that cause that have gone away. Mm-hmm. And I think the internet has come for money and it's still here. We last month was the highest month of meme coin trading that we've seen in the last really? three years um, since the Dogecoin moment uh, that you see in the film. And, you know, this is, this isn't going away. I think we've seen a tempering of expectations and of kind of money sloshing around because the broader economy has sort of started to cool off. Um, I would not be surprised if as the broader economy starts to come back and people feel like they start to have a little bit more disposable income again, that you'll see some of the same behaviors popping up again, Mm -hmm. whether it's crypto or something else, I think the ease of being able to take out your phone and YOLO your life savings in 30 seconds is still there. The social media algorithms are still encouraging and promoting the same kind of behavior. Um, our culture is a get rich quick culture right now. People are want everything instantaneously, whether that's mm-hmm. money or food or whatever it may be, we expect it right away. And, um, and so I think all the factors are still there that the internet has caused that will make this to be a lasting challenge for us going into the future. Absolutely. But it is a really fascinating moment that you guys were able to follow. It felt really at the time with Wall Street bets, like this, democratization of the entire industry. It was like, oh my gosh, we the people can manipulate stocks too. Why aren't we doing this on Reddit all the time? And then we quickly saw that they were not going to let that continue for very long. So what was it like following that? So, you know, the, the, we started the film just after the GameStop short squeeze and I was I more participated in it as someone who had bought GameStop and was staying awake till 3 a.m., texting friends and going along in that experience. I got totally sucked, sucked into, again, as you're describing this. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this excitement that we were a part of a movement that we could maybe change this system. And I think, um, I think I quickly, again, throughout the process of making the film, I think started to realize I wasn't through just a GameStop moment changing the system. And I wasn't really investing. I was sort of more enjoying this experience of gambling. And mm-hmm. that's okay. I don't judge. I, you know, I loved gambling on that. I thought it was great. But I sure. think it's a little bit different than investing in a, in a Vanguard mutual fund, um, which, yeah. and so, um, and I loved it. And I still make speculative, you know, decisions sometimes with my money because it's really fun. And I think people should be allowed to do that sort of thing. And, but I think the, you know, the energy of what we saw and this mobilization of an interest in, in money and, and uh, a frustration at the system are all themes that come across in our, Mm -hmm. in our film. This is not financial advice. At the end of the day, there was, there's a lot of people in this country who are really angry at the inequality and how unfair the system is. And I totally get that. And I feel the same. And I feel the same way when you look at, Someone who's worth a hundred billion dollars and you see the stat again that 90% of stocks are owned by 10% of people that pisses you off. And I understand that. And, you know, people out there are just working hard every day trying to get by Mm -hmm. and they're not making money off of this system. After watching the film, what are you hoping audiences will take away from this? I mean, I think the first thing that I hope people walk away with is just to think about money. 
like that at the end of the day, so many of us ignore it out of shame, out of not understanding this space. Um, but it's all around us and we're making these financial decisions all day, every day. Um, and I hope that people can just feel a little bit more empowered to, to, to make some of those decisions themselves. Um, and then two, I mean, I hope that people will join us to, I, I, we've run a nonprofit called Optimus that is building out a campaign around this film to bring it to 3 million students and to 15,000 teachers, uh, to try to help train around financial education. And I think, um, I hope people will believe that financial education is important, that will make it more mandatory across the country. I mean, only 22% of high school kids get any sort of personal finance classes. If we can get that number up on a state-by-state -state basis, I think the whole country will benefit as a result of that. And, um, and so, you know, there's a lot of advocacy and kind of education elements that I hope people kind of want to be involved in after they see this too. Absolutely. And that's another thing that we are very focused on here at Lion Tree is just this intersection of purpose within yeah. everything that we do. So tell us a little bit more about how you feel that storytelling and purpose can intersect generally and in this film. To start at the beginning, I mean, we... I call myself an accidental filmmaker. I was studying international relations and economics and uh, with my co-director, Zach, and co-founder, we came up with an idea to do some research on how families survive on a dollar a day. And we went to Guatemala and we lived on a dollar a day ourselves for a few months in this rural village. And you know, lived in a mud hut and we, I lost 25 pounds. I had Giardia and E. Wow. coli. It was this crazy experience. And we were doing research on how how basically how families survive with just $1 for all their expenses. And we brought some cameras and started making a few YouTube videos while we mm -hmm. were there to share the experience. And um, these YouTube videos started going viral and people were watching them and learning about poverty around the world and learning how they could make a difference. Uh, so we eventually tried to make it into a documentary. We we're like, how hard could it be to make a film, right? Neither of us had ever <laughs> taken a film class before. Um, well, the answer is it's hard. Um, <laughs> it's like, we've seen movies. We yeah, can we can do it, right? <laughs> so two years and about 65 versions later, we <laughs> made our first ever documentary called Living on One Dollar. And, uh, and it, uh, and eventually released on Netflix. And we did a bunch of kind of targeted events at schools and elsewhere to talk about and raise money for families living in extreme poverty. And that film raised almost $2 million for this community that we were filming in for education programs and microfinance loans and all this amazing stuff. And to us, it was just this spark that, film and storytelling can be this catalyst for social change. And not only can it create empathy and education, but it actually can spark action and get someone to change the way that they're living their life or make a decision to make a donation or vote or do something differently. Um, Cause it's such an emotional and visceral experience to go mm -hmm. through a film. Um, and that for us has just been so, so inspiring. So we've made, you know, four different feature documentaries now about 10 short films. Um, they've been seen in over 180 countries and, and raised almost $90 million for uh, different causes that the films wow. are about, whether that's poverty alleviation, the Syrian refugee crisis, criminal justice reform, immigration, food insecurity, and now financial education. And so, you know, we, we really see ourselves as a tool, right? It's like the film's mm -hmm. just a spark, like a starting point. It can't do everything. So how do you arm others like nonprofits, partners with the film to be able to use it to, to help? 
I think that really speaks to, I think, the power of conversation and yeah. bringing these issues into public consciousness can spark direct impact. Mm-hmm. What are you most proud of so far? I mean, I think um, I feel I mean, incredibly thankful to all the people who are willing to share their stories in these films because mm-hmm. that takes an incredible amount of courage to be willing it's to very vulnerable to be that vulnerable yeah. to to trust us as collaborators and to to welcome us into your their lives i mean the, the people in this film they allowed me to be with them and our, our team um my co-director zach and grassi our producers jenna and carrie to be there for multiple years, you know, in their world and waking up at 4 a.m. and there's a camera in your face, right? And like, this wow, is, it's yeah. it's a lot to to do. And so, you know, I'm just, across all of the films, I'm so thankful to the people who, who have helped, um, who've been willing to share their stories. And I think I'm just very proud that, that they've liked the films. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, mm-hmm. you, as you, it feels like such a responsibility as the creators on this content that that we're doing right by their stories and that hopefully these films can have some sort of a positive impact in the world. So I think that's what I'm the most proud of is the the you know, the, the response from the communities themselves and mm-hmm. the people who have been willing to share their stories with us. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been really fun. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend and feel free to rate and review it wherever you're listening. Stay tuned for more Kindred Cast conversations from leaders in business and beyond.